0: Well, today we have a very special interview with someone I've known for many years, who is a published author and a prodigious writer, man of many words, but the right words, I think you'll agree with me. Welcome, Simon Dillon. Hello. So today you're here to talk about your new book. Yes. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Tell us the title and a short tease for
1: it. A short tease. Okay. Uh, Well, it's called Spectre of Springwell Forest, and it's a ghost story. Uh, in the classic tradition, I think. Um, and I think that it's it's interesting because if you have you ever read um, any of the novels by people like M.R. James, oh, sorry, short stories by M.R. James, or obviously The Woman in Black by Susan Hill? You yeah. Okay, so tonally, it's very much in that tradition. Uh, and it deals with uh, a, a, a young woman who um, turns up in a sleepy village, moves there with her husband and young daughter. And finds a mysterious painting in her attic of an abandoned railway tunnel, uh, which is all overgrown. And she is strangely drawn to it and feels the need to hang it in her hallway. Uh, She later discovers that rather secretive villagers are equally, seem to be equally obsessed with this painting. And there are multiple copies of it and they are hanging in their homes as well for reasons unknown. Uh, she looks into this, but uh, but the villagers insist it's just all a bit of an in-joke around the village, no real sinister thing behind it. However, then she and her daughter nip into the woods, the local forest, for a walk, and discover said abandoned railway tunnel in the middle of this forest, go into the tunnel where something happens. I'm not going to say what. Good,
0: no spoilers. Okay.
1: And afterwards, when she looks at the painting, all of the paintings, she sees in the mouth of the tunnel strange figures start to appear. Oh, no. And um, at the same time, she's the only one who can see this figure. Nobody else can see it. It get, And over time, it becomes clearer and clearer and clearer and starts to emerge from the tunnel. And at the same time, her daughter begins to um, exhibit rather alarming behaviour. So I'm going to say no more. There's a, there's a tease. That's
0: good. That's a perfectly good tease. You leave everybody wanting more, which is the point, right?
1: Uh, yes, of course it's the point. So
0: this is a dark story. What inspired this novel?
1: Do you know this is this is a really difficult one? I thought about this the other day. I thought, what did inspire this? Something must have done, and I I really scratched, had to scratch my head because I thought I I, I think at a basic level I just wanted to write a good old fashioned scary ghost story, um, but there were a couple of little things that w- w- weren't. I mean, there's there's a couple of themes in the story that I was interested in exploring. One was uh, at the the core idea, which is how far would you go to protect your child? Okay. Which is a common theme found in, not just in horror, but you know, in a, in a lot of writing. Um, there's also a little, th- th- I also wanted to explore, and I, I have to be careful what I say here, cause I don't want to spoil anything, but I also wanted to explore one or two ideas around mob justice, mob, not as in the mafia. I mean, mob as in, you know, hordes of, of people with pitchforks and, you know, <laughs> and so on and so on. Um, but, and then the other the other thing is the other thing that's kind of in the background of the story is you've got a sort of breakdown of communication within a marriage uh, that's going on in the story as well. And so there were one or two sort of themes that I just wanted to explore, but in a horror context. Um, and actually, funnily enough, I thinking about it now, I actually think the initial inspiration came from. Uh, the, the sort of, which is a very peripheral element of the story, but the sort of playground politics that uh, at one point with the mothers at the at, you know waiting for their children or taking their children to school in the story who um, have a rather amusing sort of competitive streak, and there were one or two things in there that I thought I'd not again they, well, at that point it wasn't necessarily going to be a horror story. I just thought that that would be a funny thing to include in a story of some kind. So yes, I don't really know quite where the inspiration came from, but that's really you know honestly that uh, beyond that uh, i'm not really sure
0: well i think it's very interesting because you mentioned several key elements such as marriage communication and then you mentioned other human emotions or awkward things we go through and they all almost seem like more horrifying prospects to really explore through that lens than a ghost so what would you say makes a great horror story
1: well I think that's a very very good question. Uh, I think often people misunderstand horror because they think to make a story a horror story you just have to add buckets of gore which is absolutely not the truth. Uh, you know you could because if that were the case then you you could have a, any any war story would be a horror story I mean in a sense it is a horror story because war is absolutely horrific but it's not in genre, not in the genre sense.
0: So what is horror then?
1: Okay well I think horror is very simply you take a simple fear And then you, that's every day, and you magnify it. To 11 stupid. So here's a, here. Let me give you an example. Stephen King's Carrie. Okay, at the heart of that story, you've got uh, pubescent angst. You know, emerging, emergent female sexuality. But within, coming
0: of age story. Coming of
1: age. But within the context, of, you know, obviously with an, a religiously oppressive mother. Yes. And you've got repression and and sexual uh, birth going on, sort of fighting each other. But then what happens is, and this is this is the interesting part of the story for me. Um, the telekinesis element is a metaphor in that story. Do you understand what I'm saying? So, of all of those things, and then when it, you know, it's it's suppressed and it's suppressed, and then it bursts out violently and you know very memorably within that story. And so, again, it's a, it's a familiar situation, but then you know greatly exaggerated and magnified. So it's relatable. Do you follow me? Yes. Uh, yeah. Another good example would be the film The Babadook which is at the, at the heart of that story, again, you've got um, a single mother with a child, a problem child in school, who's causing, you know, a, a familiar situation, but again, sort of dialed up to 11 with sort of themes of guilt and grief and so on thrown in, and then you have, again, the Babadook manifesting, which is, again, a metaphor. Do, do you follow me? So, so,
0: I mean, well, obviously you read and watch a lot of horror
1: Yes. related
0: things but have you ever had any personal experiences with ghosts or curses or
1: well I, uh, ghouls I, yeah. in the night it's interesting interesting um yes i have one or two interesting uh, stories to tell uh i do i can tell you that uh, in one house we lived in uh not the house i'm currently living in the previous one uh i believe i did encounter some kind of um I don't know what it was, but I stepped in across the threshold. This was, By the way, this was during a very hot summer, okay? And I stepped across the threshold of my son, who was then, I know, not quite two, his bedroom. And, uh, yeah, I suddenly felt the temperature plummet. And it was all the cliches, you know, the hairs on your back of the neck stand up, and I could see my breath. I knew there was something, <laughs> in, there was something untoward in that room. So, yes, I have had um, encounters, one or two, things like that, which have happened where... I, you know, I can't rationally explain them, but, uh, you know, they, 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 I mean, I'm trying to think of one or two others. There have been one or two others as well. Um, I think, you know, really one should quote Hamlet here, more more things in heaven and earth than are dreamt of in your philosophy. So, you know, I, I do believe a lot of the time you can find rational explanations for things, but then sometimes you can't.
0: Or oh, technology and science just hasn't caught up to the rational explanation Of course, yet. of course. Okay, so can you tell me a little bit about like I said, obviously you're a consumer of horror and you've always enjoyed it and there's certain things to look for within it. But why are some people drawn to horror, and then others are terrified and repulsed by it?
1: I think that there, there are two factors to this. One is the um, personality aspect. So I think there are certain personalities that are naturally drawn towards a horror story. And by the way, I think the kind of horror stories that people are drawn towards will vary again on personality.
0: Agreed, hundred uh, percent. I
1: mean, have you you're familiar with the Myers Briggs test, for example? Yes. The, um, uh, the 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 okay, so the sixteen personality. test. Type thing. So, for example, there's one of the aspects of the Myers Briggs personality test is sensor versus intuitive. Okay. And the sensor being, you know, what you can see, smell, touch, taste, and so on. And people who are more orientated that way tend to, who like horror stories, tend to be drawn more towards the very physical, um, for example, the sort of serial killer on the loose kind of horror yeah. you know where it's where it's you know very serious physical immediate threats and and you know and some of those stories are very good i mean you know halloween john carpenter's halloween or whatever would be a good example um but then we kind of get to the sort of more psychological side which is perhaps more on the intuitive side of the of the of that kind of personality thing where for me for example the most terrifying things are existential and you know psychological and so for me a story you know a a, a slasher movie typically you know doesn't scare me in a particular way but whereas something like the babadook something like a ghost story you know henry james the the turn of the screw where is this actually a ghost or is this all in the protagonist's head that kind of thing i find much more interesting and much more frightening that's
0: almost scary especially for if you are someone who appreciates and enjoys your intellectual prowess, the idea that it could be just taken over or lost is terrifying, that you have no more control.
1: The idea idea of madness, which is why something like The Shining is so scary, or something like, I mean, this is why I often talk about David Lynch films being terrifying, because uh, the sort of levels of existential dread in things like Mulholland Drive and Twin Peaks and so on are off the charts.
0: So where would your book fall within that?
1: Uh, my books, uh, Spectre of Springwell Forest, is probably somewhere in the middle because it's. It, I think it has something for everyone because it does have a physical. There are some, there is a physical threatening element to it, even though it's a sort of. You, it, it can't be pinned down in physical terms, but there is a physical consequence. So
0: okay. what you're saying is, there's something for everyone. in I it. think
1: so. I think there's something. There's something to upset everybody in this. I think it's. It's a. You know, when I say upset, I mean it. It does have. I mean, I say about horror not having necessarily needing to rely on blood and gore um sometimes when deployed effectively it can you know be really really effective as well it, i'm not so i'm not i don't want to dismiss the blood and gore aspect either but what i am i mean in fact i think stephen king talks about how um there are really three levels of horror and he's not you know above stooping to any of them the the lowest being to repulse somebody which you typically get in your zombie stories or what have you but then they're also satirical. And then you have uh, scares, which would be the sort of ghost story boo kind of, you know. And then you have the highest level that he talks about is to genuinely horrify, to really get under someone's skin and rattle them in a profound way. And often that's at a very, very core, uh, primal level of the kinds of things we've been talking about. Um, You know, the sort of very basic fears that are then, you know, really tapped into it in a deep way. I just want to say one other thing, actually, because your original question was about... um, what kind of personality is also rep- repulsed by horror? Yes. And I think that um, the second half of my answer to that was it slightly depends on upbringing, I think. Because I think that, I think the, here's what I tend to find people who have been through dark things in real life find horror very cathartic find so. you know the thing i often hear is that holocaust survivors don't avoid dark stories dark books dark movies
0: and definitely have a dark sense of humor exactly
1: whereas i come across another kind of person who wants everything to have a happy ending and everything and they can't bear the idea i mean i once had a ridiculous argument with somebody who and again it's just down to difference in personality who honestly thought the godfather part two should have a happy ending i mean it's preposterous you you know the 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 ending of the godfather part two is beautiful truthful and moving but to suddenly say oh yes michael corleone should forgive fredo forgive his wife you know get out of the crime business and retire as an olive oil billionaire would be ridiculous
0: well i mean do you think it's possible that horror or the darker side of life brings a certain realism because it 's realistically a reflection of life, there uh, is a darker edge to yes. the world we live in yes. it 's not perfect
1: i think I think I believe in what I call grounded horror, so in Spectre of Springwell Forest, I try to have a again a, a familiar situation you 've got um you know a family that the, the husband 's just got a new job uh, it 's a big promotion and 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 they're get, she 's getting a house that she 's always kind of quite liked in the in the sort of countryside in the village. And, closest
0: thing the british have to the american dream well i guess
1: so and i think that you know it, she appears to have it all at this point and there is but then she has something to lose you see and i think that what she loses is not material it's you know other things but i think that i think that what's what's interesting about um the story is if you ground it in that level of realism if you have something that's you know physical and tangible in that way and you don't you know, and I think the other the other important thing to do is to not to over-explain the sort of supernatural element. And one of the things I try to do in Spectre of Springwell Forest is give a number of potential explanations. I mean, we talked about Henry James' Henry James* *Turner the screw earlier. I mean, the thing, great thing about that book is that, you know, there is a debate about is this real or is it in her head?
0: Well, let's be honest, in all horror films, and also by extension horror books, although they did at first... Uh, if you leave it a little bit vague, or you don't show everything, our brain will, pit it, will put in our own worst fear. Exactly. Which makes it far scarier than someone else trying to tell us what we're afraid of. We know what we're afraid of far more than any other person.
1: The thing is, I can actually tell you, as the author of this book, I won't, but I can tell you exactly what it is. I'm not going to tell you. What I have done is, in the book, Give you given a number of alternative suggestions including by the way a plausible scientific one so that you can if you know yeah okay so there's a lot of supernatural shenanigans in the story but if you really are determined to hang it on a you know scientific explanation there is a little kind of opt-out in the in the book that you can cling to if you want to but it's up to the reader
0: so do you think you've invented a new niche here personalized horror uh
1: no not really i think all the best horror has always done that i think think, because i think great horror stories When they leave the right things unexplained, it's what the the reader brings to it, or the viewer if it's a film. I mean, I've seen there are certain films. Some of my favourite films like um, Picnic at Hanging Rock, or um, Don't Look Now, or. Uh, I don't know. But more recently, there was a film called *The, the Falling*, which was which was sort of um, a very very much sort of the British um, version of *Picnic Hanging at Hanging Rock*. Some people said rather reductively called it that. But what what the whole what those films have in common is that the the viewer is the final part of the film. They they what they bring to it. If you see what I'm saying what they bring to the film, what they see in the film. And it'll depend from viewer to viewer, I think.
0: Yes. Well, I mean, we've talked about the fact that you've drawn on some of your personal experiences or you've definitely had experiences with the supernatural or odd phenomena. Uh, To what extent, if any, are your characters based on real people in your life?
1: Oh, well, that's an interesting one. I mean, sometimes in uh, my books, I do base very obviously indirectly on people I've met. Um... If it's in a complimentary way, then you know I try. I, I sometimes make it clear for the people so that they can have a good laugh when they read. However, if it's less than complimentary, I disguise it a lot more. I don't think that anybody who's inspired characters in my stories in a negative way would be able to recognise themselves. Well,
0: hopefully not. That one, would be one, very awkward. One would
1: hope not. I mean, I always think of that famous story that J.K. Rowling talks about with uh, the the real life person who inspired. Um, the, the Defence Against the Dark Arts teacher in the second Harry Potter story. What's his name again? Lockhart. Yes. You know, utter buffoon he is. And she said, I don't think the guy in real life would ever recognise himself in that. But that's him. Yeah,
0: but let's be honest. We very rarely do we recognise how others see us or how we really are. We that's see true. our own version of ourselves.
1: That is absolutely correct. And by the way, um, just to come back to Spectre of Springwell Forest, in this particular novel, there is nobody who is directly inspired by a real-life character, just so they're absolutely clear that there is, there, it's purely... If, if anybody did, it'd be purely pure coincidence.
0: <laughs> you have to have a disclaimer like they do in the movies.
1: Well, I mean, the thing is, there's always the disclaimer, but in this case, there is a disclaimer and a disclaimer because it really is the truth. I haven't based anybody in this particular novel on anybody I know.
0: So let's say when you have a murder mystery uh or something else what many people do is they write the ending first and then scatter the clues backwards and that's like a hack it way to do something like that maybe not hack it but it's a it's a smart way to do it because you know where you're headed did you know what the ending would be when you started or did it just happen
1: no i knew what the ending was the thing is that i had to I'm. that's true of everything i've ever written i'm a control freak i know the ending and i work backwards from it now does the
0: story ever surprise you
1: Yes, along the way. I mean, if you if if I know that I'm going to go, um, you know, from from the start to the end, I may take detours along the way, and it may throw out unexpected branches here and there. But I know where I'm going to end up.
0: Has so, your ending ever changed? No. Interesting. No.
1: I, in fact, I I, I say that. I, here's what I did do once. Okay, when I wrote my most you know in relative terms successful novel to date um children of the folded valley when i wrote that i actually had three potential endings and at the start when i started writing it i couldn't decide which one to go for um and it was a very interesting one that because all three of those endings were really strong and i had to choose and I think I made the right choice in the end, but uh, but it was interesting because that's the only time that's ever happened. Most of the time, but I always have an ending. I never don't have an ending. So in this case, in the case of Spectre of Springwell Forest, I knew what the ending was immediately, and it was the first thing that occurred to me. When um, I mean, I've I've spoken about the inspiration. You know, Stanley Kubrick once said, "Ideas are a trap. You have to have a story." You know, so like I said, I may have been sort of mulling over, uh, you know, mums in the playground or whatever. But actually, um, it wasn't until I got that ending that I thought, okay, now I'm going to work backwards from that and plot this thing out to get to that point. And that I won't write a book unless I have an ending.
0: Well, to raise another writing technique that I think most people have heard of, it's write what you know. Would you say that you write what you know?
1: Well, again, this is an odd one because. I write in a number of different genres, but um, I think I'm most comfortable uh, in terms of how much I've, uh, you know, because obviously writing certain things is more of a challenge than others. But in this case, the kind of story like Spectre of Springwell Forest is my, if you'll forgive my use of an obscenity, comfort zone.
0: Oh, good God.
1: Yes. So I have a sort of spectrum of psychological thriller and to supernatural drama horror. Okay, that sort of spectrum... And this falls within, obviously, more towards the horror end of that spectrum. Other books I've written, like, for example, Birds Began to Sing, is more towards the psychological thriller end of that. But that that is a spectrum that I write very comfortably within, and I think it's probably what I'm best at, if I'm brutally honest. Now, I say that. I have written other stories. I've written stuff for children. Um, I've written Children's Adventures,
0: I was Um, just going to ask you, do you only write horror? No, I don't only
1: write horror. I've got a number of children's adventure stories out there. uh, The most recent of which actually was an animal fiction story, which I released last year called Echo and the White Howl, which is about wolves in Alaska. And the reason I wrote that story, there was one reason. My youngest son begged me to write a story about wolves. So I wrote him a novel about wolves. It's kind of akin to something like Watership Down. It's actually quite, quite a dark story. There you go. I mean, not I
0: surprising. I, I can't really help myself. <laughs>
1: it's quite a dark story, but it's it, it's it's akin to something like Watership Down, but with wolves, and it it doesn't really. Um, writing animal fiction was a fiend. I will never do it again. I did it purely for my son, because uh, it, it, can you imagine? I mean, it's little little things you have to think of. I'll give you an example. This is a detour, but I'll just tell you this. So when you you find yourself writing things like such and such a character couldn't put his finger on it, it's like, well, he doesn't have fingers. It's a paw. You yes. know? It's all those sorts of turns of phrase that you have to have to kind of be, be careful of. Yes. And then there are things like, um, I don't know, the, obviously with a, an animal fiction story, you have to give human characteristics to the characters, okay? But at the same time, their knowledge can't exceed that that they would naturally be aware of. So when you're talking about something like The Sea... They don't really have a concept of the sea, so they have to, you know...
0: Well, why do you have to do that? Is it so they're relatable to human beings, or...? Well,
1: the, you have to make them relatable to human beings, but at the same time, you know, a wolf's instinct to hunt and all the rest of it. I mean, all of, I did tons of research for that book, and so I, I, there's a lot of facts in there, but it, so it's not that the wolf behaviour is different, it's just that you then give them the human characteristics. You know, some of them are jealous, some of them are, you know... And actually, Echo and the White Howl is a revenge story. You know, it's it's...
0: Well, to go back to horror then, do you ever find that you do that for your evil characters or your baddies, if you like, to, to use a simplistic term? Do you ever humanise them or make them relatable?
1: I try to. I absolutely do try to. I mean, but by the way, by the way, here's an interesting question because what I, refer, I referred to Children of the Folded Valley earlier. The antagonist in that story, who's a religious cult leader, okay, now he's an out-and-out villain because you only see him through the eyes of the... Protagonist. Yes. Okay. And he is reprehensible and rightly so. Now, the thing is, he's reprehensible to the reader, but I didn't write him rep- as a reprehensible person. I have a whole backstory for him, okay, which and explained why he was the way he was. But the problem was, I didn't end up including any of that. I mean, there's the barest hints here and there, but I didn't include any of it in the final narrative because. I found that if I included it, it took the focus off the main protagonist in a, in a negative way, in a way that detracted. Sometimes you do need an unrepentant witch, as it were. However, that said, I do try to, with antagonists, make them well-motivated and, wait, and you know, just as a general point, make them well-motivated. And and in this particular story, Inspector of Springwell Forest, um, I think that is the case. I think you can understand the point of view of every character in that story, I think.
0: Yes, and I think that makes a character relatable to each person on a human level. Yes. Because you can understand why, through a certain path or motivations, they would go where they went.
1: Yes, definitely. And
0: that's so important. I mean, reading your book, I can definitely see, at least I think I see, some inspirations you may have had. But what writers inspire you, or creatives?
1: Well, I mean, I already mentioned the specific case of Spectra of Springwell Forest. I mean, the main two were the short stories of M.R. James. Have you ever read *Oh Whistle and I'll Come to You, My Lad? No. Or have you ever... OK, well, or things like The Ash Tree, which is a personal favourite for me. I mean, that's just absolutely terrifying. Um, or, you know, Warning to the Curious. OK, so there's those. And then there's also... The, you're familiar with The Woman in Black, though, right? Yeah. OK, so The Woman in Black is a giant of the genre. Now... Again, it's there are a couple of very specific things from The Woman in Black, which I would say inspired elements of this. So you know how that... The, uh, never mind the film, okay? The way the book starts with a sort of flashback framing device, there's a similar device used in Spectre of Springwell Forest where it starts much later on, okay? And she's got this horrifying secret in her past. Now, in the case of The Woman in Black... It actually opens quite, you know, nicely at Christmas time. With you know, he's an old, he's older, and he's with his family, and so on and so on. It seems quite warm and cosy. But there's just this vague hint of unease about everything. It's very clever. Susan Hill is a superb writer. Okay, and he's, you know, he he obviously then tells the story. But what happens is that as the, as he is telling the story, because at the start of the story, you think he thinks well, he thinks he is past it. It's in the past. It's buried. It's done. It's he's over it now. Whatever. But then as he tells the story, you realise you become less convinced of this. And you get to the ending and you realise he's just re- reopened this old wound. Yeah. Okay. And there's a real sense in which, you know, no, he hasn't got past this. And actually the, 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 the beautifully terse prose in the very end of that book, uh, when it's kind of the sort of denouement, is, which again is very different to the film, Um It's brilliant. And I wanted I wanted some of that terseness in the in the sort of finale of my book.
0: Yes. And I can't talk about it, but you definitely deliver. Yeah, for sure.
1: And I wanted, again, the idea of in my book to have it because my book opens at Christmas as well. in in, you know, with 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 she's with her second husband at that point and they're out in Exeter. So it's,
0: it's coming out perfect time.
1: Of course, yes.
0: Seasonal horror. Seasonal
1: horror. (laughs) Um, I mean, it's not, um, you know, I wouldn't call it a Christmas story directly, but it does have, yes, it opens during Christmas. And I think that what then happens in the story is that something happens to precipitate. I'm going to have to tell my second husband this thing that I hoped never to have to tell him. Okay. And again, it's sort of, so it mirrors The Woman in Black in that way a little bit, I think.
0: Okay. Well, will you be writing other scary novels or just... Other novels in general.
1: Other novels in general, but I am funnily enough, the next book I am writing will be a scary one. Uh, I have a story. Do you want to tell you a little bit? Yes, or maybe little should, bit a uh, little bit of a tease. A little bit of a tease. Do you remember how Peter Sellers used to consult uh, psychic mediums?
0: Yes.
1: To and he wouldn't take a, a role as an actor unless you know he'd he'd uh, you know was
0: it in the cards?
1: Well, exactly. So this is something along those lines. Uh, it's a. Mystery. You
0: consulted a psychic about whether you should write your next horror book.
1: No. Oh. No. Okay. No, no, no. The the story itself is. Okay. I mean, I'll just tell you a little bit because I've 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 just started it. I'm going to write it. The bulk of the writing will be done in the early part of next year. But uh, it's. I would say it's not as directly scary as some of my other. I mean, it's, it's not as scary as Spectre of Springwell Forest. It won't be as scary as The Irresistible Summons, which is probably the next book that I'm going to release after Spectre of Springwell Forest. But this one. It's slightly more towards the psychological end of that spectrum that I talked about, but um, it opens with this uh, grieving widow who, she's an actress, but she's a bit part actress, not massively successful, living in the... Sh- she's married to a much more successful actor who has just died, okay? And she's living in his, you know, family home, and... I don't really want to say too much more than that. It's a psychological story. It's what to time do-
0: period is it set in? Uh,
1: it's set. Um, it's set in the present day.
0: Okay, fascinating. Yeah. Cuz it sounds almost like a Victorian gothic story the way you start to phrase it, but modern day is kind Yeah, of I a mean funny I twist. mean at
1: this unless, but at this point it's set in the present. I may change it. You never know. I mean, one of the things I try It's funny you should mention time set time periods because the, the whole sort of concept of contemporary novel drives me mad, and, I, and I'll I'll give you an example of this. Uh, in one of my um I had a sort of peculiar blip. I wrote a novel called Love vs. Honor, which is a teenage romantic drama. Okay.
0: Oh, how odd. I
1: know, very odd. Uh, very out of character. But I had a really good idea and it just wouldn't go away and the voices in my head wouldn't shut up, so I had to write it. So I written written it's released. Um, I think it was arguably a failure, but um, I actually, well, I say that. Anyway, never mind. The point is, in this particular story, I initially wrote the novel in 2006... And it was very much a, and it, but at that point it was a contemporary novel, and it was very much I think a product of George Bush's America, and, um, and 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 Tony Blair's Britain, and that whole time period, and the sort of aftermath of the so-called War on Terror, and so on. And there were a number of contemporary concerns in it. There was also more specifically one of the characters in the story the teenage girl in the story whose father uh, fled from Iran following, following the revolution in order for the time period to be plausible of to have a teenage daughter at that age it had to be set at that point so what then happened was I released the novel in 2015 and I sort of realized I'm going to have to make this set in 2006 otherwise because it's no longer she would be 10 years older and it wouldn't it, the time periods don't work anymore so there are certain things times where you have to kind of you know you're
0: restricted
1: you're restricted um in this in this sense so it was a contemporary story that then became not contemporary in the case of spectra of springwell forest that's actually not contemporary it's set in 2010 slash 11 and 1979 the bulk of it in 1979 um and again there are some reasons for that
0: well i think the fascinating thing about time periods i don't want to go off into too much of a tangent here because yeah. we're coming up to the end of this but mm-hmm. Certain time periods clearly lend themselves to certain types of story. So like I said, gothic horror is very much that Victorian, we don't know everything yet scientifically, we're not really sure what is true, what isn't true. But, and but you've got you see, your penny dreadfuls roaming around. So it creates a great atmosphere with the restraint of sexuality, but then the ferocity of the night and what happens on the streets, et cetera.
1: Well, I agree with you. I mean, if you're talking about things like Dracula and so on, obviously I do agree. Of with, course. Uh, 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 but, but here is the, here is the thing about, you see, I don't think the Gothic is restricted to the just Victorian era. And I'll tell you why that, why I believe that. Um, I've got a novel again. I'm hoping it's going to be out in around June of 2019. Uh, Called the Irresistible Summons, and that is a Gothic story, absolutely. But it is set because you just mentioned there about concerns about technology. This is set in a—it's a sort of, in one sense, it's a haunted house story, but it's set in an office building in Canary Wharf. Yes, that is a a software company. It's a—it's they're doing research into computery things, which I won't get into. But it's with some very specific technological concerns within that story. But it is a gothic, ghostly, mystery story. And so I think that the gothic, it's it's more, I don't necessarily think that it is tied to a particular time period. I think it's more of a tone. That's just my opinion.
0: Well, it's been wonderful talking to you today. Before we go, can you explain to people how they can get the book, when it'll be out, and whether they'll be able to give it to other people for Christmas as well?
1: Okay. Uh, the answer, yes, Spectra Springwell Forest um, will be out on the 20th of December. You can buy it on Kindle. You can pre-order it on Kindle. Um,
0: If you're very organised. If
1: you're very organised. The the physical paperbacks will not be out until the 20th of December, so that does make it very tight for Christmas, I understand that. But please buy it anyway. Uh, I think anybody who enjoys a good page-turning, nail-biting mystery will enjoy it.
0: Well, I think, let's be honest, not all of us are so prepared to have all our Christmas presents in order, and the 20th seems like a decent time period to get them. So whoever's listening, wherever you're listening, I hope that you will investigate this book because it is well worth the read, thoroughly entertaining, and actually very horrifying, which is its intention. So until we speak to you next time, we'll say goodbye.
1: Thank you.